Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your Calls One Planet series. Today, we are marking Martin Luther King Jr. Day by discussing the history and the future of the environmental justice movement. So many of Dr. King's speeches could be said today. Here is an excerpt of a speech he gave in 1968. Our world is a neighborhood through our scientific and technological genius. We have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. But somehow and in some way we've got to do this. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. John Donne caught it years ago and placed it in graphic terms. No man is an island in time of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he goes on toward the end to say, Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never sin to know For whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We must see this, believe this, and live by it. If we are to remain awake uh, through a great revolution... That is an excerpt from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution, in 1968. Joining us is Professor Robert Ballard, who is widely considered the father of the environmental justice movement. He started his work with the environment and race long before it was a movement. For nearly five decades, Professor Ballard has used the climate justice framework to study and identify patterns of institutionalized environmental racism. How can we use the environmental justice framework to find long-lasting solutions to the climate crisis and stand up to powerful fossil fuel companies? What lessons can we learn from the civil rights movement in the fight for climate justice and equity? Professor Ballard is founding director of the Ballard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice and distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University. He's also co-chair of the National Black Environmental Justice Network and the author of 18 books that address environmental racism, transportation, climate justice, and community resilience. Hi, Professor Ballard. Thanks so much for joining us again. Good morning. Good morning. Well, as you have said, you have seen environmental justice move from a footnote to a headline, which means that we are making inroads and progress in research and policy. Even though we have made strides, we have a long way to go. So can you talk more about that? Just talk about some of the changes that really stand out for you over the course of your work. Well, of course. Uh, first, uh, let me... Uh uh, wish everyone uh, happy uh, MLK Day uh, of service, and uh, this is an important uh, day. Uh, but it's important to recognize the legacy and the and the charge that we were all given uh, in in uh, this holiday being uh, uh, created as a national holiday. Understanding that Dr. King went to Memphis, Tennessee, in 1968 on uh, on a mission of economic justice, racial justice, and environmental justice um, in terms of striking garbage workers. And the fact that the, the workers 
I had to endure the uh, the awful work conditions, unequal pay, and basically not treated as equal in terms of men. So that was Dr. King's last uh, uh, crusade, and it was about garbage. It was about uh, environment. It was about work, and it was about civil rights. Fast forward, uh, the the issue of the fact that the environment was seen in 1968 uh, probably uh, not as a civil rights issue uh, by environmental environmentalists because two two uh, two years after Dr. King was killed, Earth Day was held, and and there was no justice in Earth Day. There was no uh, racial reckoning. Uh, the fact that America is uh, segregated and so is pollution, and so the the fact that it has taken decades for the understanding that everybody has a right to breathe clean air, clean water, drink clean water, and for the kids to play outside without having to play across the fence from a refinery or chemical plant. We've made a lot of progress. We'll still uh, have a long road uh, to go. And 10 years after Dr. King was was uh, assassinated in Memphis, uh, I was asked to uh, collect uh, data for a lawsuit uh, that was filed by Linda McKeever Bullard challenging the location of a landfill uh, that was being placed in a black middle class neighborhood in Houston, Texas. This was not a ghetto. This was not a poverty pocket. It was a middle class suburban neighborhood of homeowners. And in Houston doesn't have zoning. So people said, well, and power said, put it over there, and over there happened to be where black people, uh, homeowners live. And the first lawsuit challenging environmental racism was Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation. And that was before there was a movement. And it was not until 1983 that uh, Warren County, North Carolina, again, over a landfill, over waste, but it was toxic waste. We've spoken to you about this before, and since you brought this up now, um, you have pointed out that all five public landfills in Houston were in black neighborhoods. Six of the city's eight incinerators were in black neighborhoods. More than 80% of all solid waste dumped in Houston from the 30s to 1978, as far back as you and your team of students could find, was dumped in black neighborhoods. And this was as uh, black people made up 25% of the population? Yes. That's a, that's a, a, a finding that, uh, in, as a sociologist, we'd say that's, uh, that's quite unusual. And in terms of that happening by, by uh, random or accident, uh, you just don't find those kinds of uh, situations. So what we basically found is that, that environmental racism and that was the, the, the lawsuit was about uh, discrimination in the siting of, of where facilities are located at, that where you dump garbage, dispose garbage or burn it, uh, was not a poverty thing. It was race. Race was a factor and that this was not a poor area. Uh, and again, there were no white areas that were poor uh, that received facilities or, or uh, rich or whatever. Uh, this was a, a decision that were made by by policy measures that said your community is compatible with garbage, therefore you are garbage. Hmm. How did people respond at that time? Well, the 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 community residents uh, protested and they demonstrated. They hired lawyers. They hired an expert witness, and uh, we fought it in federal court. Uh, that was since nineteen seventy nine. I have to remember this was a long time ago, and the case went to court in nineteen eighty five federal district court, and the judge, uh, first it was in a, a black federal judge, female judge, uh, and, and when, it, when it was going to trial, it was taken out of her court and placed in the senior federal uh, judge um, uh, who was uh, uh, white and male, who must have been 150 years old, uh, who was calling us Negras, and it was, uh, if, you don't, if you're not from the South, uh, you may not know, Negra is a, a, a dressed up word calling you the N word. So mm-hmm. we lost in court, but uh, we, we won in terms of a larger issue in terms of developing the research methodology, research protocol, the legal theory for, for 
uh, challenging environmental discrimination, environmental racism, and using uh, that to support community struggle. Uh, this was a, a community uh, a, uh, uh, community uh, research that was driven uh, and academic support uh, from uh, HBCU, Texas Southern University. There's a name for it now. It's called Community-Based Participatory Research. Fancy for saying that's what we did way back in 79. Hmm. Can you talk about the, the precedent that that set for what we are seeing today? Because, uh, Professor Bullard, so many of our guests on our One Planet shows say that the, the courts are so important when it comes to climate justice, um, especially if we either see no change from the government or the government continues to allow this to happen. Well, I think, I think the courts are very important. Uh, just understand, just back up a bit. Uh, Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. Seven days later, uh, uh, President Johnson uh, pressured the, the government, uh, pressured the House and the Senate to pass the, uh, the Federal Fair Housing Act on April 11th, 1968. That, that became a law to enforce fair housing. Uh, and, there, and, and that fair housing law that was passed uh, helped to usher in uh, new kinds of opportunities for people of color in terms of outlawing discrimination in terms of race, color, national origin. Uh, the fact that we have never had an environmental justice uh, law uh, and that only the, the closest thing that we've got um, is an executive order that was signed by President Clinton in, in uh, uh, February 11th, 1990, uh, 1994. Uh, and, and next month, uh, we'll be uh, commemorating uh next month, February 11, 30 years of that executive order. The fact that we don't have uh, uh, laws that that are designed uh, and the courts have somehow pushed back against uh, using uh, the kinds of, of research uh, findings that can support a, a racial discrimination case um, uh, in 2000, and, I think it was 2001, there was a lawsuit, uh, Alexander v. Sandoval, that struck down uh, 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 disparate impact, it, which means that if you have overwhelming evidence like we had in Houston, uh, you can show that pattern. But but that case uh, now you have to show intent. That's a huge hurdle to 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 uh, to overcome. But the mere fact that some courts uh, are willing to see uh, and to find uh, discrimination, but but we don't have enough uh, teeth in our laws or the backbone of a lot of our um, uh, agencies and, and local, uh, county, state, and federal officials to enforce environmental protection um, uh, that, that, that gives everybody equal protection under the law. The fact that, as I said, America is segregated and so is pollution, so it means that some of the policies that were implemented uh, by law in the 1930s, which was racial redlining, and it was legal back then, uh, redlining is nothing more than a way of saying some neighborhoods are going to get uh, uh, federal loans for housing and infrastructure and parks and green space and flood protection, etc. Uh, and and those areas were green line and they were given federal dollars uh, during the Roosevelt administration, the New Deal. But but today. Those neighborhoods that were redlined, where a line was drawn around, say these neighborhoods are risky. You don't get a dime, and and you don't have uh, protection, etc. The racial footprint that the, of the redlining that occurred 80 years ago, those neighborhoods today are more prone to flooding. Uh, they are more prone to more pollution. Uh, more, um, they are hotter because there's no green space. They are uh, or or green canopy or trees. They are. They, they are basically nature-deprived areas. They're more prone to all kinds of health impacts because it's hotter. And, and, and just these couple of years, we know that these areas also were more prone to COVID in terms of infect, infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. Mm -hmm. So pollution uh, and, and segregation 
will create a double whammy for some uh, communities. And that's what we have been fighting for. And climate change will, will exacerbate those disparities that have been created artificially by government and by regulations and, and unequal protection. On today's One Planet series, we are marking Martin Luther King Day by talking about the history and the future of the environmental justice movement with Professor Robert Ballard, founding director of the Ballard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice at Texas Southern University. He is widely considered to be the father of the environmental justice movement. If you have any questions or comments, what are your thoughts about the state of the environmental justice movement. If you're involved in any organizations, we would love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. Also, if you'd like to talk about uh, your neighborhood, things that you've seen today or in the past, you can also email your call at KALW.org. Professor Ballard, we found a great piece about you in the New York Times from 2022 called at 75, the father of environmental justice meets the moment. It's by Kara Buckley. And she wrote about one of your seminal books, Dumping in Dixie, which you wrote back in 1990 about the barriers to environmental and social justice experienced by African Americans. She wrote that your manuscript was rejected a dozen times. You were told that the words environment and racism did not belong together because the environment couldn't be racist. That's true. That's true. You know, uh, so, uh, if I had taken it personal, I, I would have been discouraged and uh, would have walked away. Hmm. But that that being a sociologist, you know, and you discovery uh, on this quest for more and more knowledge, uh, it made me work harder. I got a publisher. Uh, I finally got a publisher and. Um, Westview Press, which is based in Boulder, Colorado. I don't know if you've ever been to Boulder, but Boulder is different. Uh, I don't know if it's because of mountain high air, beans, sprouts, tofu, beer, uh, marijuana, but <laughs> they published a book and, and it was, uh, they made it a textbook. I didn't write it to be a textbook, but it, it, but it made it a textbook and it got into the hands of professors and the universities. And I had a, uh, a 40% author's discount. And so I was able to get a bunch of books and I got it to my people who I wrote it for. But again, that, uh, that was uh, 1990. And as I said, uh, uh, we had a movement, but it was still more of a footnote. And the idea of, of, getting, of, of getting the uh, environmental racism and environmental justice on the radar of policymakers and getting... Uh, the whole idea that facts and data and research and 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 science uh, all all of those areas matter, but it's it doesn't matter if you don't marry those facts and data and science with action, and that's why I said um, in terms of of uh, that book, uh, the the Dumping and Dixie book that was the first book. And I wanted to target an audience, and I wanted a very easy read book. Nothing, nothing dense or, or, or hard to read. It's straightforward. And the idea that, as I said before, uh, the way that pollution tracks with the most vulnerable and what makes communities vulnerable is that structural and institutional racism, whether it's uh, refineries, petrochemical plants, or whether it's highways, those uh, 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 built environment factors, uh, development follow the path of least resistance, and historically that resistance uh, was was uh, crushed by law. You know, in some places in the South, uh, in the Southern states, um, it was okay to discriminate because that was the law, Jim Crow segregation. But we know that it's the dumping and Dixie was not just the South, even though the book was about the South. If you look across the country. You'll see that the patterns uh, hold true for for not just African Americans, but for Hispanics, Latinos, for Native Indigenous people, for Asian uh, and Pacific Islanders. The pattern holds true, and that's why we say, in order for us to tackle the environmental and climate uh, crisis, we have to dismantle this this whole question of structural inequality and structural of the things that make. Um, 
the unevenness in terms of who gets what, when, where, and why. That's our movement. That's our climate environmental justice framework writ large. Whether we're talking about energy, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about issues around uh, pollution from from highways, or we're talking about which communities are going to get access to clean energy, which communities on a, uh, will get you know the the kinds of of uh, access to healthcare and schools and infrastructure. You know when I when when I was writing um, uh, dumping in Dixie. Uh, there was there was no money uh, set aside uh, uh, when when uh, when uh, President Clinton signed the executive order. There was no money for for uh, the executive order one two eight nine environmental justice order. There was no money for it. Uh, but but when when but when uh, when President Biden uh, in in uh, uh, the day before uh, Earth Day in. 2023 signed the executive order 14097, the environmental justice executive order. Uh, there's 60 billion dollars in the Inflation Reduction Act, 50 billion with a B in the Inflation Reduction Act for environmental justice. It, Professor Ballard, it's also so important when you think about all the connections that MLK made. You mentioned so many communities there. It's also low-income white communities that are being affected by this. Yes. Yes, pollution, no no, no bounds, particularly when, when communities that are poor, working class, are physically located on the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong side of the levee or the wrong side of the highway or those are in the wrong zip code. I mean, uh, and we it took us uh, a, more than a decade to get uh, some of the folks in uh, in uh, in East East Tennessee and in uh, in West Virginia to understand that the issues that they're being faced uh, uh, by pollution these are the environmental justice issues. No, it's not environmental racism, but in terms of communities that are poor and that are underdeveloped and that are being poisoned, whether it's with with uh, mountaintop removal or these uh, industries. Chemical plants are dumping water. I mean, dumping uh, pollution into their waterways, or their or their um, their uh, electric bills are so sky high because they're not able to access uh, uh, affordable uh, electricity, et cetera. These are justice issues that uh, eventually uh, a lot of the uh, white communities uh, start uh, started to get it. And that every time we talk about environmental injustice, it's not just it's not environmental racism. Well, we say it's an injustice. And if you are a child uh, and you uh, you can't vote or you can't demonstrate or whatever we are and you are being poisoned with lead or 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 whatever the the environmental challenge uh, um, uh, may be, we say that's an environmental justice issue, even though it's not uh, uh, necessarily pertaining to um, race or income. It's in terms of vulnerability. Now we've broken through that barrier in many ways, and we are light years from uh, when we were uh, uh, working on dumping in Dixie, and I was in West Virginia Institute, West Virginia, uh, talking about environmental racism with that uh, Union Carbide plant that was across the fence from from um, uh, West Virginia uh, uh, State University. It was West, the school was founded as West Virginia Colored Institute. It was black community in West Virginia, and a lot of people don't even know. There were black people in West Virginia and that chemical plant found them and set across the fence from them. And so, yes, we had to uh, shatter the, this old myth that somehow environmental justice is just about poor people of color. Well, we're going to take a quick break. On today's One Planet series, we are marking Martin Luther King Jr. Day by talking about environmental justice and environmental racism. Professor Robert Ballard is founding director of the Ballard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice and professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University. He's co-chair of the National Black Environmental Justice Network and is the author of 18 books that address environmental racism, 
smart growth, climate justice, community resilience, and so many other important issues. And coming up after the break, we'll also be joined by John Beard Jr. After working in the oil industry for 38 years, he turned to holding the industry accountable and became a community advocate in his hometown of Port Arthur, Texas. This is your call. We'll be back after this. This is Your Calls One Planet series. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today we are marking Martin Luther King Day by talking about the history and the future of the environmental justice movement. Today we're joined by Professor Robert Ballard, who is widely considered to be the father of the environmental justice movement. You can learn more about his important work at yourcallradio.org. Now we would like to welcome John Beard Jr. to the show. John Beard Jr. is founder and executive director of the Port Arthur Community Action Network. Network, a community-based environmental justice nonprofit organization. After working in the oil industry for 38 years, John Beard turned to holding the industry accountable and became a community advocate in his hometown of Port Arthur, Texas. Hi, John. Happy Martin Luther King Day, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy Martin Luther King Day to all of you. You know, John, I have to say, after reading your bio, I thought we spend a lot of time on this show talking about the oil industry, but it is so rare to speak with anyone who actually worked in the oil industry. Can you tell us you spent many decades? Uh, did you spend all of your years working for ExxonMobil? Uh, well, I won't say all my years, but I'll say I did spend 38 years or wow. 38 of those years, uh, a little over that, uh, working for ExxonMobil and its predecessor company, um, Mobile Oil Corporation. And you worked in petrochemical production, emergency management. It sounds like you did a lot of things yes. for them. Yeah, I wore quite a few hats. I started out in uh, maintenance and then went into uh, process for a while, which is basically the work that you do to produce the oil and gas, running that equipment, making sure you maintain production schedules and the like. Uh, but I also had some training in uh, on the environmental side as an industrial firefighter as well as dealing with uh, hazardous materials handling, uh, you know, and, and emergency management. So between that and all, as well as my work uh, being a former city councilman and former mayor pro tem here in Port Arthur, I, I like to say it gives me a very unique skill set in this space to address all of those things which directly impact people, not only in Port Arthur, but elsewhere. When did you retire from Exxon? Retired from Exxon in 2017, uh, not very long after Hurricane Harvey. Mm -hmm. And seems like that was the timing was, I guess you'd say, indirectly kind of fortuitous because, uh, you know, I got into using my skills from emergency management and also my knowledge and background from having been through four major storms previously as a city councilman to helping uh, my colleagues that I'd left on council as well as the community in general with hurricane recovery. You know, given, John, that it's so rare to hear from someone who worked for the industry, can you just tell us what were your thoughts working for Exxon and then seeing a mass movement around environmental justice, around the climate crisis? Can you just tell us what were your thoughts and then what were some of the conversations you had with your colleagues there? Well, so largely my activism and work in this space uh began quite early because I lived within two blocks of the fence line of one of the largest refineries in the country, uh, Valero in Port Arthur, and then right across the street virtually within a couple, 150, 200 feet of the fence line of what is now the largest refinery of the, in the country, which is Motiva. And I currently live within a half mile of that, of both of those facilities as we speak. And my parents came here in the late 20s and early 30s and they talked about how, you know, if you had a white house or a lightly colored house and you were outside, like many people grew flower gardens and the like, sat on the porch in the evening and drank coffee, chit chat with the neighbors. And then you went inside, but came out the next morning and saw this yellow stain or something on your house that had gotten on there that, you know, you didn't put there. And then people re began to realize that, you know, it was something they were being exposed to, something that was released during the night. And over the course of all those years growing up in that community and then working in industry, what largely led me to change my focus was the fact that I began to see the disparity between what they said, the companies, and what they actually did. 
And then with the changes that came about after the oil embargo in 73, uh, when mechanization came in, and also the fact that they started hiring fewer and fewer people of color in my community. You know, we're built on oil, gas, steel, and rail. But that began to change. And when that began to change, that's when I saw what is basically the the destruction of my city in terms of housing and in, in terms of all of that. You know, we went from being the city that had a model, we oil the world, to one now that is one of the poorest cities in the country, has high unemployment, has high urban blight. Almost a third of the citizens live out of below the poverty line. So those things allowed me to, got me to shift my focus and began to see that there was some environmental injustice and environmental racism in the way these multi-billion dollar multinational companies were dealing with communities and people of color and like here in Port Arthur. Hmm. Uh, Professor Ballard, what has your experience been like in working with and talking with people who used to work in the industry, people like John Beard? Well, I I haven't met many people like John. <laughs> uh, let me just say that, that uh, during my four decades of working on environmental justice issues, uh, we, we have, when I was in, working in Louisiana, there were workers uh, in the uh, all, all, all Chemical and Atomic Workers Union that uh, when we were trying to get... Um, relationships built with, with the union and the community. And we finally got, um, uh, the, the, this relationship that, that was, um, uh, not perfect, but was much better, uh, when people, when the workers unions saw that we were talking about improving the work conditions inside the plants, as well as fence line communities, that we were not talking about, uh, threatening jobs or anything like that. Uh, but again, um, the, the, I'm talking the the 90s and the 2000s, the early 2000s, when uh, communities on the fence line were fighting to get to uh, to get more safety because it, you know it was too many shelter in places, accidents, too much pollution, too much um, problems that were being um, had in those in those communities, and we got uh, we got some support from. Uh, uh, some of the workers in the unions, but it was more, um, antagonistic and, and again, convincing, uh, workers that we were not talking about taking them down and, 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 and somehow, uh, uh, creating big problems. And what we also found is that in many cases, the, if you look at the fence line communities, the residents in the fence line communities, uh, some of them got jobs, but the bulk of the workers came from outside of the fence line who drove in and and spent eight hours and worked and, and left. And that's why when you look at the data uh, across the country, the fence line communities, uh, uh, are, there's no economic renaissance uh, by having the, the, the chemical plant or the refinery across the fence. The economic renaissance the benefits are more dispersed, whereas the cost and the harm is more localized. And so, when I when I when I see John's case, you know, uh, I see him as uh, ha- having this awakening. And um, but but uh, to a large extent, there has not been uh, this great awakening. There's still some some antagonism that exists uh, with uh, some of the unions and some of the workers and and some of the industries that that uh, have pitted uh, the, the, the community and the organizations that work on environment and climate justice as, as, the, uh, as the boogeyman. John, Port Arthur is 90 miles east of Houston, and the largest oil refinery in the United States, the Motiva Refinery, is located there. It's wholly owned by Saudi Arabia. Can you tell us about about that refinery, the health impacts on the community, and and tell us a, a bit about the activism that you all have been uh, doing around this refinery. Well, one, one of the things I like to say is uh, my former employer had a motto that we take on the world's toughest energy problems. I like to say that Pecan and its members and the Port Arthur community, those of us, who try to work in this space, we take on some of the world's toughest energy companies. 
uh, Motiva being one of them. Uh, and it's strangely enough, let me add that Motiva is the largest in the country and 15 miles away in Beaumont, Texas is the second largest refinery in the country, which is my former employer, mm-hmm. Beaumont's Exxon Mobil Refinery. So in Jefferson County, Texas, a little over 90 miles east of Houston, you have two of the largest refineries in the country. In addition to large petrochemical facilities that manufacture the precursors for plastics and all of that. There's a great, there's a high concentration of it in a very, very small and limited area. So, but going on with uh, looking at that, we do take on those problems uh, from pollution, such as one of these companies uh, dumping in plant water and waste that they accumulated from storms into the cities storm drain system, which drains directly into the Sabine Nature's waterway, which goes into the Gulf of Mexico. So it's not just air pollution. It's not just the flaring, the excessive flaring, which matter of fact, if you go to my Facebook page, you will see uh, what is an ongoing series I do called While You Slept, and it's in the air you breathe. And Valero had a pretty big flaring event last night because of the cold weather and the changes that they were going through and all. And uh, I just happened to be out and about about 9, 30, 10 o'clock that night, and I witnessed it. So I took pictures of it. And that's what we try to do is document these things and then hold these companies accountable for the pollution they do. But not only the companies, but our regulatory agencies like TCEQ and the others and the EPA. They're not giving us the help and service we need in order to protect the lives and health of people in not only the Port Arthur community, but in the surrounding areas that are not communities of color. So we all are, as Dr. Uh, Bullard mentioned, affected. We all are suffering from this. It's not just a black and white thing. It's a people thing. It is a human rights issue. And we are all affected by it. So given that you're so close to two of the largest oil refineries in the country, can you just tell us what they look like? How big are they? (laughs) Oh, they're massive in size and scale. If you Google Earth, Port Arthur, and look at it on the shores of Lake Sabine, uh, when you come back out from space and look at it, go way up. I, I'm sure about seven, eight hundred miles, as I think I've seen it show. Uh, you look in the Houston area and Port Arthur, Lake Charles, all along the Gulf Coast, and you'll see something that looks kind of whitish or, you know, different color. And you would normally think that it's land features, you know, uh, that, that, that you're looking at. But as you zoom in closer, those white things began to take shape and you began to see that those white things in different colors are not land masses, but they're petrochemical infrastructure. They're tanks and tank farms and units and refineries and pipelines. And when you look at Port Arthur up close from that angle, and you look at all of these other cities on the Gulf Coast, you began to see that whole neighborhoods are surrounded and dissected by the petrochemical industry. Within tens of feet, you have not only pipelines, but rail lines, from the rail cars that are bringing in oil and gas and other things to ports and to refineries here. So these facilities are massive. They're huge. They take up not square blocks, but square miles of area. And they take up a great portion of Southeast Texas. And it's no wonder why with so much of that here and the large percentage, which I think is anywhere from maybe 12 to 18, 20% of the petrochemical production in America is in the area between Houston and Port Arthur in Southeast Texas. So it's it's no wonder that the pollution is as high as it is in those areas and that people are suffering from it. And that's one of the critical issues that we're taking on right now, the human cost of all of this petrochemical infrastructure. That is John Beard Jr., founder and executive director of the Port Arthur Community Action Network, a community-based environmental justice nonprofit. He worked for ExxonMobil for 38 years and then decided to work to hold the industry accountable and become a community advocate in his hometown of Port Arthur, Texas. We're also joined by Professor Robert Ballard, founding director of the Ballard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice, professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University, co-chair of the National Black Environmental Justice Network, and the author of 18 books on these issues. Let's hear from a caller who's been waiting patiently, Judy in San Francisco. Hi, Judy. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Um, I I, I actually uh, met somebody when I was traveling around in Port Arthur who told me that at her graduation, (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm laughing, but it's horrible. Um, the stockings were dissolving on the women's, uh, you know, legs because of the pollution wow. at their graduation. But anyway, that's not what I called to talk about. Um, but thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what I was calling to talk about is right here in San Francisco and Bayview-Hunters Point. At Hunters Point, you know, that was the shipyard. And that was the shipyard that attracted uh, workers, African-American workers from the South, to uh, San Francisco during World War II. And that neighborhood, Bayview-Hunters Point, was kind of a redlined, um, you know, neighborhood where uh, African-Americans settled and, uh, you know, they worked, settled near their work and also in the Fillmore. Um, <clears throat> but now now the, they're trying to um, put up housing there. I think it's Lenar Company is still trying to put up the housing there. Um, and, you know, people are promoting it as this great housing and it's going to have, you know, stores and whatever. But it's on a Superfund site that is never being cleaned up, and um, <clears throat> you know, radio, um, atomic submarines were like cleaned and dismantled there. And there's horrible, horrible pollution of all kinds. There's a woman named um, Dr. Uh, Ahimsa Simchai Porter who has set up um, a monitor. You know, she, she's a medical doctor, and she set up. Um, a monitoring facility where people are monitoring their, um, you know, their, the chemicals in their body, and um, she's, you know, tracking the diseases, the, the, the um, you know, the disease clusters there. Um, but it's a terrible, terrible fight always going on in San Francisco. I hope it, I hope they get that site cleaned up. The Navy is responsible for cleaning it, and they just don't really do it. They say they do it, and they. Not done. Well, okay. thank you for bringing this up. As you as you talked about the Superfund site, one of the country's most polluted places, and we will definitely do a show about this. So thank you for the call, Judy. Uh, we've got just about 10 minutes left, and, and I just want to make sure that, I mean, this is all related, but to talk about uh, liquid, liquefied natural gas. I think this is a really important issue to discuss. According to the Financial Times, in 2023, the United States overtook Qatar to become the world's largest liquefied natural gas exporter. Its seven existing terminals can produce as much as 11.4 billion cubic feet a day, according to the Energy Information Administration, enough to satisfy the combined gas needs of Germany and France. There are five projects in the pipeline. Dozens of other projects have been proposed, most of them around the Texas-Louisiana border. Uh, Professor Ballard, can you first tell us more about liquefied natural gas and why this is booming in the U.S.? Well, first of all, the uh, liquefied natural gas is LNG is nothing uh, uh, but methane. And it's really uh, contradictory uh, in terms of our uh, national uh, policy that's that's attempting to uh, uh, address methane uh, on a global, on the U.S. as well as the global scene, and this rapid build out of LNG export terminals. Uh, the law was changed so that uh, uh, the U.S. can uh, export uh, gas. And with all of the fracking and two states uh, are basically uh, ground zero for this. And uh, and again, when the uh, war in uh, in Ukraine erupted with Russia's uh, invading Ukraine, that really sped along more and more uh, uh, demand and this acceleration of the build out. Again, the the build out is is actually following the same pattern of um, of the old old pattern of where um, uh, fossil fuel uh, facilities are being located, like the like the refineries and then the petrochemical uh, industry uh, along uh, uh, communities of color and and areas that are already saturated. So when you talk about you know there are five operating uh, LNG facilities right now and and communities have a 
have a, a good reason to be anxious and concerned about safety uh, of the five. Four of the five have had some type of accident or some type of uh, eruptions. These things are not uh, uh, something that uh, you want to be next door. But again, that's the pattern. And again, uh, John can talk about the one in Port Arthur. John? Yes, uh, Dr. Bullard's uh, fully correct about that. The petrochemical expansion in Louisiana and Texas is largely based on LNG and the importation or exportation of gas to those countries uh, in Europe. But what we have here is a false flag because while there's a lot of talk about it being to help Europe become free from the gas of Russia, Europe technically has no shortage of gas now because of less colder winters and because of the fact that they were prepared and stockpiled quite a bit of that gas. Now here in Port Arthur, we're just right across Lake Sabine in Louisiana, but it's closer to Port Arthur than any other city in Louisiana. You have the largest exporter in the United States of LNG, and that is uh, Chenier's Sabine Pass LNG. But you also have in Port Arthur proper the ExxonMobil Golden Pass LNG, which is being converted from an import to an export facility. And you also have Semper's Port Arthur LNG, which I rather call Semper's LNG because I don't want my city named after something as disastrous and catastrophic as what putting this LNG into play is going to do. And that's that's the danger in it all. It is going to exacerbate climate change. It is going to make global warming worse. And it's going to happen in communities like mine where it's going to increase the air pollution. And as a matter of fact, we won a case back in uh, November of this year in the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court, which basically vacated the air permit for that very facility the Semper's trying to build. So they're trying, they're right now still under construction, but they have no permit to operate because they were found by the U.S. Fifth Circuit, the state of Texas, the regulatory agency, it's TCEQ, was found to have, quote unquote, arbitrarily and capriciously put the air plan together. Because we were able to show that it was going to adversely impact not only myself, but communities in southeast Texas. So we're, this fight is still going on and, and being waged to help these communities because they don't locate these facilities in, in places of affluence like River Oaks in Houston or in Madison Avenue or in Beverly Hills. They locate them in communities of color where they sacrifice those people, where there's very little ability to fight back. Mm-hmm. John, we have just a couple minutes left. I'm I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about where we are right now. I mean, on the one hand, the Biden administration talks about the importance of climate justice. The EPA recently announced 11 organizations focused on the environment will receive 600 million to distribute to local groups for climate projects across the country. But then we see this LNG boom. We see an expansion of oil and gas drilling under the Biden administration. What do you make of this? Well, what I make of it is is this, is that it's being, it's being played as a trade-off. In order for you to get things to help these communities of color and the people that are affected, we're going to give you something, but we're also going to give it to you so we can facilitate doing the very things that they're doing here, which are sacrificing the lives and health of people. I'd like to put it no, in no greater words than those of Dr. King, and I hope I can quote them correctly. He said that may justice flow like waters, like the rivers of a mighty stream. We have yet to see in communities like mine in Port Arthur and elsewhere, true environmental justice. If you're releasing benzene, like one of the third largest emitters here in, in the United States, Total Refinery, which is located in Port Arthur, third largest emitter, and other companies such as uh, that are emitting ethylene oxide and all of these contaminants that are making people sick. And you have the high levels of cancer, heart, lung and kidney disease you have here that you don't have in other communities that are that don't have this infrastructure. If you're not doing something to help those people, why hurt them? What you're doing is hurtful. That's already here. And now you're bringing more death and poison and destruction to them. There has to be some justice. And that's what we're continuing to fight for. And in memorializing Dr. King's Day today, 
we need to keep in mind that this fight still continues, that there's still no equity and justice in these communities, that the trade-off between funding for these various projects in order to allow this injustice to continue and proceed is not only wrong, it's unjust and it's evil. And we need to be mindful of that and reinvigorate ourselves with the knowledge and with the commitment to fighting for justice for all, because what affects us here in Port Arthur affects the world. Mm-hmm. And this is being visited upon the whole world, the exploitation of oil and gas and the proliferation of fossil fuels worldwide. So it's important that we continue this fight, engage more people into it, because that's what it's going to take. And we will win this battle, but it's going to take all of us pulling and working together to do it. Professor Ballard, what would you add? We have about a minute left. I'll just add that that uh, we should resist any uh, and all false solutions when it comes to climate. And there are lots of being uh, those false solutions that are being promoted uh, in the in the name of uh, carbon capture storage or hydrogen hubs. Billions of federal dollars are being put uh, at that um, at at the expense. And these facilities, these hubs will be located in the same communities uh, like Port Arthur and like Houston, Manchester and like uh, Louisiana Cancer Alley. Must resist that and uh, and not uh, fall for uh, this this idea that somehow. Uh, these are real solutions to climate. They are false solutions, and, and we have to fight that. Professor Robert Ballard is founding director of the Ballard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice at Texas Southern University, co-chair of the National Black Environmental Justice Network, and the author of 18 books. John Beard Jr. is founder and executive director of the Port Arthur Community Action Network, a community-based environmental justice nonprofit. After working for ExxonMobil for 38 years, John turned to holding the industry accountable and became a community advocate in his hometown of Port Arthur, Texas. John and Professor Ballard, thank you so much for your important work, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And you can learn more about their work at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to Malihe Razazan for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thank you so much for joining us on MLK Day. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call.